If you have your Bibles, I invite you again, please, to take them or take it and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are still going through a verse-by-verse exposition of this epistle. This is message number 32. If you recall, for those of you who were here, in our last message, message, we looked at Paul's wonderful, Paul's fantastic description of the incredible body of Christ and the dynamic that occurs when the indwelling spirit works in individuals to manifest himself through different abilities and manifestations. It is one of the most beautiful pictures of the church given anywhere in scripture. It's a wonderful picture and we encourage you to read it over and over. As the Holy Spirit sovereignly enables members of the incredible body of Christ to work in such a way that it builds itself up in love as they share their gifts with one another. As a result, an organic spiritual growth from God occurs as opposed to an organizational growth that comes from man. The growth that lasts is the growth that comes from God. The growth that comes from man might come with a lot of flash and all kinds of exciting things, but it fades away. It's only what is done by Christ through the Holy Spirit that will last. Now, in this chapter, he reveals two amazing facts, two vital truths concerning the body of Christ. First, he says, the body of Christ is a mystical, spiritual organism whose members are joined to their head. Jesus Christ, and to one another by the Holy Spirit. This is a mystical union. This is a wonderful relationship. And this is an aspect of the church that, unfortunately, members of the church do not seem to recognize as much as they should. It is not an organization. It is an organism that is enlivened, which is which is uh, given life by the Spirit of God. And it only grows, and it only works for the glory of God when the Spirit does the work. That's the first thing. Secondly, it shows in the Scripture that we need one another just as much as we need Christ. Now that might seem a little fun, but that is true. Why? Because we are him. We are his body. We are connected to him, the head. And as the head feeds, as it were, the nourishment, the spiritual nourishment to the members, the members share it to one another. We are connected to one another. We go. Sing about the valley of the dry bones, Ezekiel prophesied the bones would live again. He said that the bones would walk. 
Ezekiel connected them. Dry bones, Ezekiel connected them. Dry bones, Ezekiel connected them. Dry bones, now hear the word of the Lord. The toe bone connected to the foot bone. The foot bone connected to the ankle bone. The ankle bone connected to the leg bone. The leg bone connected to the knee bone. The knee bone connected to the thigh bone. The thigh bone connected to the hip bone. The hip bone connected to the backbone. The backbone connected to the shoulder bone. The shoulder bone connected to the neck bone. The neck bone connected to the head bone. Now here's the word of the Lord. And them bones, them bones gonna walk around. Them bones, them bones gonna walk around. Them bones, them bones gonna walk around. Now hear the word of the Lord. Disconnect them bones, them dry bones. Disconnect them bones, them dry bones. Disconnect them bones, them dry bones. Now hear the word of the Lord. The head bone connected from the neck bone. The neck bone connected from the shoulder bone. The shoulder bone connected from the back bone. The back bone connected from the hip bone. The hip bone connected from the thigh bone. The thigh bone connected from the knee bone. The knee bone connected from the leg bone. The leg bone connected from the ankle bone. The ankle bone connected from the foot bone. The foot bone connected from the toe bone. Now hear the word of the Lord. Them bones, them bones gonna live again. Them bones, them bones gonna walk around. Them bones, them bones gonna praise the Lord. Now hear the word of the Lord. Them bones, them bones, them dry bones. Them bones, them dry bones. All right. That's the physical body. The same truth applies to the spiritual body. We are connected to one another and to the head. The head is connected to us as well. That's the wonderful, that's the wonderful, incredible thing about the incredible body of Christ. We are one, one with another. And one with Jesus Christ. We must understand that. We must get out of this habit, this idea of thinking that church is just a club, just an organization. It isn't. It is the incredible body of Christ. Let's look then at our chapter, chapter 12. We're going to pick up at verse 8. Where Paul resumes his enumeration of spiritual manifestations or spiritual gifts. He started to name them. He named nine of them. He described nine of them. He stopped and then he talked about the wonderful, incredible body of Christ and the dynamic that occurs when these gifts are manifested by the Spirit. But now in verse 28, he picks up again to be, uh, continue his enumeration of the gifts. And it says in verse 28, And God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. I want you to notice several things here that are usually overlooked by a casual reading of this verse. First, notice it says that God the Father is said to have done something that Ephesians 4 tells us Jesus did. Notice, God appointed in the church. First, apostles, second, prophets, and teachers, and so on. 
Now flip over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And look at verse 7. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. It says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he, that's Christ, ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Notice now, and he, that is Christ, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, this tells us that Jesus is God. This is a strong statement here concerning the deity of Jesus Christ. What Jesus did, God did. Scripture is very clear. Jesus is God. There's only one way to salvation, and that's through Jesus Christ. Uh, it may not sound like a nice thing to say in this age of tolerance and compromise. But Jesus says, I am the way. The truth and the life. I, the only way, he says. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Other than the name of Jesus Christ. But something else here in Ephesians 4. These are gifts of men. These are not abilities or manifestations themselves. These are gifts of men. Notice what it says in verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, gifts of men. Now look at, it goes on. Then miracles. These are abilities. Healings, administrations, tongues. These are gifts or manifestation of spiritual ability. So we've got to make a distinction, a difference between gifts of people, gifts of men, and gifts of abilities. But third, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, then teachers. Note that except for the gift of evangelists, the gifts of men are actually prioritized by God himself. First the apostles, second the apostles, uh, I'm sorry, prophets, then teachers, and so on. It is God who does the prioritizing. He does it. Now, there's a lot more that could be said concerning these men who are given. But we'll deal with that when we come to Ephesians 4. We're going through 1 Corinthians, and we want to see it as 1 Corinthians, as the Corinthians started as much as possible. And that's why we will continue to go on here. Except for certain things we need to clarify, we'll continue in that fashion. Let's look at several of the gifts then that were not mentioned by Paul in the opening verses of this chapter. First, well, really it's not first, it's number 10. Because he stopped with number 9 in the first section of the, past, of the book. Apostles, he says, God has appointed in the church first apostles. This is the tenth gift mentioned by Paul in this chapter. They are prioritized. They are put on top of the list. They always are. The apostles are always placed as first in the list of gifts of men, wherever they, wherever they are mentioned. Now, some time ago, I used to call this particular section 
apostleship. I used to call it the gift of apostleship. But then I realized that I had made a mistake. Did you get that? I made a mistake. But really, that only lasted for a while because I realized that I made a mistake in thinking that I made a mistake. <laughs> but anyway, I used to call it the gift of apostleship. But I have come now to believe that that is incorrect. Because apostleship focuses on an office. Position, if you want. I believe that the Holy Spirit in the listing here focuses on the individual. It was the individual that was given to the church, not a position. And this is where I believe we have so much foolishness going on today by people who call themselves apostles. He gave the men, not a position, to the church. The individual was given to the church universal. And that's another thing we have to see here. This is listed in the context of the church universal, not the church local. It's important for us really to distinguish when you come to scripture. And this is one of the things we leave out here. This was his gracious means of establishing the church on the earth. And so the first, the first gift that he gave to the church was that of apostles. Now in the Greek, apostolos means one sent with an official message invested with the authority of the sender. That's the root meaning for this word. One sent with an official message invested with the authority of the sender. Similar to an ambassador perhaps. The twelve apostles were unique men with special powers given by Christ himself. Now this principle of investing with power an individual before they can be an apostle is clearly demonstrated by Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 10. Look at it in your Bibles. Matthew 10 verse 1. The text says, And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out and to heal every kind of diseases and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax gatherer, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Notice what it says in verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing him. Now notice the text carefully. Notice the sequence of events. Jesus summoned the twelve, what? Disciples. Then he did what? He gave them authority. Now notice verse 2. After he gave them authority, they were called what? Apostles. Now look at verse 5. These twelve, what? Apostles they sent forth. It wasn't the twelve disciples anymore. Because remember, these twelve disciples were called out, summoned from a lot of other disciples. But then Jesus invested them in certain authority, powers, gave them a message, 
That's when they became apostles. Then he sent them forth. Now the book of Acts makes it quite clear that the two basic requirements necessary to become and a unique apostle. Because these men were unique. First. These individuals must have been present with Christ. From baptism to his ascension. In other words they must have been acquainted with him. Through his ministry. That was the qualification that was laid down to choose who? Matthias. That's in Acts chapter 1. Secondly. They must have seen Jesus After his resurrection. That's also in Acts chapter 1. Those were prerequisites to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so the primary meaning of apostle then is. One who had a personal experience with Christ. And invested with special powers and his authority to represent him. Directly, specifically. That's an apostle. These were unique men. Never to be duplicated. The need for the apostles diminished as the church became established. These were unique gifts of men to the church for its establishment. Notice what it says in Ephesians 2. Listen very carefully. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation, notice, having been built on the foundation, not on the first floor, not on the second floor, not on the third floor, not on the fifth, we'll come up the tree, not on the fourth floor. All right. Having been built on the foundation. That's what you put down first. That's why it's called foundation. And you only lay once. You built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Apostles and prophets. Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The one who ties everything together. They were necessary For the establishment of the church. Clearly taught in scripture. Clearly taught in scripture. The apostles and prophets. Now their function. Of establishing churches. Can be secondary. Applied in a secondary sense. To people today. That we call missionaries. They go into new areas to do what? established churches you can call them apostles not in this unique sense but as one sent with a message and so on but the primary meaning is that these men were unique it goes on to the prophets this is the 11th gift mentioned in this passage again it's gifts of men now this gift of man is different from the gifts of prophecy having to do with ability. We must distinguish. This gift of man as a prophet and the, as prophets and the gift of prophecies as an ability are different gifts. The Holy Spirit could use anyone at any time to prophesy. 
either to foretell or to foretell something from God. But these prophets were always prophets. They were unique in the founding of the church. They were prophets. They didn't only have the gift of prophecy, they were prophets. And so I see the New Testament prophets, by the way, he's talking to New about New Testament prophets here. They were men who were uniquely endowed by the Holy Spirit to receive God's will and word directly from him and to both foretell and foretell it to the world when the word of God was not yet completed. In other words, before we had the Bible and all of its, and all of its parts and so on, God revealed his mind, his will to people directly. And then that will, that word was proclaimed. Those were prophets. Those were prophets. Along with the apostles, they undoubtedly manifested the gifts that we looked at the other day, the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. Because the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge were involved in receiving and understanding directly the will and word of God. And so like their counterparts, the apostles, these prophets were unique gifts of men given to the church universal for laying the foundation of the church. That's what the Bible says. And so their need was automatically diminished following the establishment of the church in the world. However, like the apostles, their basic function of the prophet to tell forth the already revealed word of God has been passed on, as we'll see later, to the gift of pastor, teacher, and so on. But we'll see that in a moment. Because the twelfth gift that is mentioned is that of teachers. Again, it's gifts of men, not abilities. These were, like the apostles and the prophets, involved in the establishment of the church. They were in the early church. For instance, in Acts chapter 13, this is what it says. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and what? Teachers. Notice they didn't say apostles. They said prophets and teachers. Because one of the things you're going to see as you go through the book of Acts, certain activities, certain needs are done away automatically because the need was met by the individuals. Whom God gave to the church to meet the need. And once the need was met, they moved on. And it was passed, the work in a different form was passed on to other men. And that's what happened. We have a sequence, of, of, as it were, of, of, of functions going on in the local church. Prophets and teachers, and then they named some of them. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger and Lucius and so on. And Saul. These were prophets and teachers in the local assembly. So I define them in this fashion. Teachers are men who are divinely enabled to understand, explain, and apply the word of God so as to edify and equip members of the body for ministry, especially at the establishment of the church. You will see why that is. What I want to emphasize is that when you read the scriptures, please understand the chronology of the scriptures as well. There was a sequence. Things happened after a period of time. Certain things that happened at the beginning 
don't happen anymore. It just automatically faded out. Some of the functions continue, but in another form. Now these men undoubtedly also manifested the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge relative to the revealed word of God that allowed them to understand and apply the revealed will and word of God as they received it directly from him. Now James gives a dire warning regarding teachers and teaching today. And this is the verse of scripture that scares me to death. James 3 verse 1. Notice what it says. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we, includes himself, shall incur a stricter judgment. Did you get that? All these people you hear from these pulpits preaching on the radio and preaching on TV, they can get one severe judgment. We can have all the fun we want. We could skylock. We could say all kind of foolishness. We could do all kind of craziness and everything else. But we are going to face God's judgment. You know what the Bible says about God when it concerns Christians in Hebrew? In the book of Hebrews, talking to Christians. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to Christians. It is a fearful thing. To fall into the hands of a living God it is a fearful thing for a teacher who shouldn't be teaching to fall into the hands of a living God. Now this gift of teaching was included with the gift of pastoring, so we have to bring in Ephesians 4 again. Let me read that text to you. I think you, you understand again my concern for staying to Corinthians. But at times we have to, as I mentioned before, move off into another book in order to explain some things that I want to do right now. In Ephesians chapter 4, we gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists. Notice now, and some as what? Pastors and teachers. Now, we believe that the Greek text here is best understood to read pastor teacher or teaching pastor or literally a teaching shepherd or even more literally a feeding teacher that's the Greek a feeding teacher it, in other words it's not two gifts that are mentioned in Ephesians 4 it's one it's a teaching pastor a pastor who feeds one gift rather than two in other words one can be a teacher are not a pastor. But one cannot be a pastor and not be a teacher of the word in a f one form of a fashion. That's a very important truth. And if we applied this strictly as the Bible says, we would change the way we organize our leadership throughout many churches right away. Let me repeat. One can be a teacher and not a pastor. But one cannot be a pastor and not a teacher in one form or fashion. In other words, all pastors are necessarily teachers also, but not all teachers are necessarily pastors because the gift of teaching is listed as a separate gift of ability, not just as an individual. And so I really believe that we have done a disservice to the word of God and today we can have pastors of sports and recreation. 
I believe that's a disservice. The word of God. I believe it's lowering the kind of quality of leadership that God is talking about. We have diluted the spiritual significance of what the Bible defines as a teaching pastor or pastor teacher. They are to do for the flock of God exactly what literal shepherds are to do for sheep. To care for them, to defend them, to feed them. The New Testament also designates them as elders, bishops, overseers of the church of Jesus Christ. They're all one and the same. As far as the title is, different. Function, the same. And so I define a pastor teacher in connection with this. The pastor teacher is an individual whom the Holy Spirit endows with the spiritual power and ability to feed the church of the word, to church, the church, the word of God, to provide it with spiritual nurture and leadership and to protect it from false teachers. That's how I define a pastor teacher. Paul then moves on now to number 13 in his listing of spiritual gifts here. Now he moves from gifts of individuals or gifts of men to gifts of abilities. The first he mentions is that of helps. This is probably the same gift that is called the gift of service in Romans 12 chapter 7. I believe those are the same. In Romans 12 7 is listed as service. Here it's mentioned as help. The Greek word means this and this is very important to understand this gift. It means to take a burden on oneself in the place of another. I say that's important to understand the meaning. It doesn't just say I can help you do this so I can help them. No, it has a spiritual significance to it. I believe that the best description of this gift is in Acts chapter 6. Let me read the passage. This is the passage that we normally go to to talk about deacons. But that's not necessarily the, the, uh, the only application of it. Let's read it. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, Notice, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. These seven men were to take the burden of serving tables from off the shoulders of the apostles and put it on themselves. You get it? They would take this burden off the apostles and put it on themselves. Why? To free up, to allow the apostles to do a job that they were actually called to do. Gifted to do if you want. And so I define this gift of helps in this fashion. It is the divine ability to perform practical, necessary tasks which support and or free up others so that they may perform their own ministry or meet their own needs within the assembly. 
The focus is on you releasing somebody to do something else that they are more gifted for. You get the picture? That's the idea of the gift of health. The key here in Acts 6 is that these men freed up the apostles to do their ministry. These are folks then who saw the spiritual behind the practical or mundane events if you want. It's the idea of taking the load off someone so they can be free to do that which they are more gifted to do. That's the gift of helps. The 14th gift, the 14th gift mentioned is that of administrations. The Greek word means to stand before, to preside over or to preside, or to pilot a ship. Those are the different connotations of this word in the original. In the scriptures, it is given as a requirement for a pastor or an elder. In 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, it says, If a man does not or cannot manage, that's the word for administration. That's the word. If a man does not or cannot administer, manage his family, how in the world do you think he's going to administer or manage the church? So Paul says, when you're looking for a leader, the place, first place you look, is not the seminary, but the home. He also says in 1 Timothy 5.17, I'm sorry, in 1 Timothy 5.12, 1 Thessalonians 5.12, he says that we are to appreciate those who have charge over us. That's the word, administer, in the Lord. We are to appreciate them. We are to respect them. 1 Timothy 5.17, now this is the one I like. I can spend a lot of time on this one. This one says that those pastors, elders who rule well, that's the word, are worthy of double pay. <laughs> Do you can say that? But that's the word. That's the word to manage, to administer. And so I define the gift in this way. It is the divine ability to provide effective spiritual direction and supervision. The emphasis is on the ability to manage spiritual priorities. Spiritual. That's the emphasis. Paul then uses a literary device of asking a series of rhetorical questions in order to make a point that so many people dealing with gifts seem to misunderstand today. This is what he says. Verse 29. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? These are what are called rhetorical questions. In other words, the implied answer is, of course not. Of course not. And so here's how I paraphrase this. This is the RLP. All believers are not apostles. All believers are not prophets. All believers are not teachers. All believers do not have gifts of working of miracles. All believers do not have gifts of healings. All, gifts, all believers do not have gifts of languages. All believers do not have gifts of interpreting, a, of, of interpreting languages. In other words, all believers do not have the same gifts. Now, Paul thinks it's important. 
Because he repeats it, he emphasizes, he underlines it, he underscores it, he darkens it, he does everything. All believers do not have the same gifts. Now Paul exhausted himself, I believe, in explaining that. But yet, you know, many people still don't get it. It amazes me. So, having explained all of these things, these gifts, these manifestations, Paul then makes what appears to be a surprising, if not a contradictory statement. Notice what he says. But earnestly desire the greater gifts. That comes at a, a slap in the face to those who have been following the text. Why? Because all through his teaching, he's saying that it's the Spirit of God who sovereignly gives us the gifts. We cannot choose it. We cannot pray for it. We cannot do anything to earn it. But now he says, earnestly desire it. Why should I earnestly desire it if I can't get it? So he appears to be contradicting himself. By saying that the Corinthians and by implications, us today, we should earnestly desire the greater gifts. Now, as we shall see as we go on chapter 14, the greater gifts he's going to say is prophecy and teaching because they're the ones who, those are the ones that more readily give edification, building up of the people of God. But now, what is Paul saying here then in this passage? This is how, what I believe he's saying. Here's my paraphrase. However, you must earnestly endeavor to have the gifts that edify exercise in your gatherings. See, he is talking about what happens within the church. So he's saying, now what you should desire, after I've listed all of these things, you should desire that in the church, the gifts that edify, like prophesying and teaching and so on, those are the ones that should be demonstrated. Those are the ones that should be exercised. Not the ones that nobody can understand. In other words, he's saying, conduct your services or meetings in such a way that the gifts that edify and build up the body are the ones that are given priority. In other words, when it comes to spiritual gifts and manifestations in the church, Paul is saying this. The main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is the edifying of the people of God. And he's saying in context, he's going to come in chapter 14, that prophesying and teaching are those gifts that edify. But then Paul makes another intriguing question, statement. I tell you, when you read this through and you get what he's saying, you always, Paul always grabs you. I show you a still more excellent way. Now say, hey, Desire the grace, greater gifts. Pray for that only the good edifying gifts. But you say, now, I can tell you something even better than that. I put it like this. But let me show you even certain or sure fire way for this to happen. The New Living Translated puts it like this. Now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. But of course I have my own. Paraphrase. Let me explain to you a guaranteed way you can solve all the problems you're experiencing at Corinth. That's what he's saying. We talk all about these gifts. All these things have given you problems. I've explained everything. 
I want you to be sure that the way you set up your meeting, that the gifts that edify the people of God, those are the ones that are prominent. Those are the ones that are giving priority, not just fooling around and having a good time, but the things that edify. But you say, now, let me give you the end of all advice when it comes to what should happen in the local church. Let me explain to you a guaranteed way you can solve all the problems you're experiencing at current. Would you like to have that solution? The solution? I mean, to be sure that if we put it into practice, we ain't got no problems in the church. Wouldn't that be good? No fighting, no fussing. Wouldn't that be great? That's what Paul's promise is. Paul makes a promise. Can he keep it? Well, what is this solution? This exciting, tremendous promise brings us to chapter 13. The love chapter. The love chapter. And that's where we have to end today. We'll get into the love chapter next time, Lord willing. But in context, Paul says that's the answer to everything. Love. Father, thank you for your word. Use it, we pray, to transform us to be the people you want us to be. To be the incredible body that you've designed us to be. And all of God's people said, Amen.